I came from a beautiful neighborhood. I had a beautiful life. I went to sleep because September 7th was the first day of my high school year. I was going to be a senior. At 22, I was set to start college. I woke up and my life was never the same again. Cops came out with guns drawn and I never saw freedom ever, ever since after that. It's like Roach Motel. Once you get in, you're not getting out. This is Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Hi, listener. I'm Carol Fisher, the host of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister. I'm so excited for you to hear the brand new season where we're uncovering a 35-year-old mystery. But for those of you who didn't hear season one or just want to listen to it again, you can now get access to all episodes of that first season of The Girlfriends 100% ad-free through the iHeart True Crime Plus subscription, which is available exclusively on Apple Podcasts. You'll also get access to every single episode of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, ad-free and one week early, only available to iHeart True Crime Plus subscribers. So what are you waiting for? Head to Apple Podcasts, search for iHeart True Crime Plus, and subscribe today. Summon your anticipation for an all-new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. This season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then, fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd. Today, I'm honored, and I don't use that word lightly, to have as our guest, Derek Hamilton. Derek, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Glad you're here. Derek, your story is extraordinary in so many ways, and I don't even know where to begin, but I guess we should really take it back to the beginning, and and we'll save the reveal like they do in Hollywood to what you're doing now and, and what you've accomplished in your life over 
extraordinary obstacles mm-hmm. that are almost unimaginable obstacles. But let's go back to the beginning and talk about how this began. You're you're a New Yorker, right? yes, born absolutely. and bred like me, Brooklyn, Brooklyn. from Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Okay, Brooklyn in the house. That's right. All right, Bedford Stuyvesant uh, neighborhood, um, where violence was the norm. You know, it was um, very tough housing project I grew up in, Lafayette Gardens, um, where it was kind of like uh, one block with. 80,000 people on it, you know, in a housing project. And if you got a basketball, you had to go outside and fight for your basketball. If your mother or father bought you a pair of sneakers, you had to fight for your sneakers. It was very depressing. And every little kid wants what the next little kid has. And if your family don't have it, they gravitate to trying to take it. So it was tough. It was tough. And you had some early scraps with the law. Why don't you talk about it? Absolutely. I was a young kid, about 16 and 17, and got into a life of crime. Um, Attempted to rob someone with the prison for that. Um, ultimately, I was released and I was out. Some older guys uh, had committed a robbery of a bread truck and actually killed the truck driver. Um, I was outside that day when the crime happened. Did you um, see it? I seen the action. I actually seen it. And actually, the guys had asked me to look out for them. If the cops came, just whistle or something of that sort. The next day, um, walking down the block, the police officers picked me up. Um, and they don't question me about the crime, but they just take a picture of me and asked me, am I Derek Hounton? And I said, they knew me previously from the incident that I had, uh, attempted robbery. Right. So um, I, I thought nothing of it. Um, I left out the precinct. One week later, they arrest me for the murder of James Wolf, And it just stunned me. Because I know I didn't kill Mr. Wolf. I know I wasn't involved in the crime. But what I learned is that one of the older guys who actually committed the crime, who car was identified as the car seen fleeing from the scene, was able to convince the police officers that he loaned the car to me, a 17-year-old kid, um, with no license, with anything. And the cops actually believed that story. Um, Well, we've seen this in a number of cases where the actual killer is, and you could say they're being smart, right? right, They know that their way out is dependent on somebody else. Well, first of all, I was from the housing project right where the crime happened. He wasn't. So it seemed more obvious that I was the luck, you know, likely suspect to get. But in the event, I go to trial, and during the course of the trial, my lawyer tells me that there's a witness outside in the hallway who called her out and explained to my lawyer that she would refuse to testify. Her name was Patricia Lee. She said the cops had forced her to go in the grand jury and identify me as someone she saw outside the housing project who spoke to her after the murder happened and said, I panicked and I thought I shot the guy in the arm. Um, she said she would refuse to testify. She couldn't get up on the stand and tell that lie. My lawyer came back in and reported this to the court and said to the court, there's a witness in the hallway that we never knew existed who said this to me. And then the court said, well, let's bring the witness in. The witness comes in and the prosecutor asks for something called a sororis hearing in New York. And, uh, and a sororis hearing is people versus sororis. And what this hearing does is it, it puts the burden of proof on the prosecutor to prove by clear and convincing evidence that I waive my right to confront the witness at trial if me or someone acting for me made the witness unlawful refuse to testify. So the judge held this sororis hearing and the witness testified that it was the cops who in fact threatened her and made her lie to the grand jury that me or nobody acting for me ever had any involvement with her whatsoever. In fact, we never knew she testified in the grand jury. So... Right, the judge, those hearings are secret. Right. Yeah. So the judge ruled that day that he could not allow the prosecutor to use this witness grand jury testimony against me as evidence in chief. In fact, he have heard not one iota of evidence 
that me or anybody acting for me did anything wrong. Right, because the, the case was hinged on the eyewitness testimony, which we know is one of the most powerful things in the criminal justice system. Absolutely. Right. So, so, now, so now you're feeling like, okay, I'm walking uh, can out. I go home now? Right. Right. So, so they adjourned for later. a day. Right. And they adjourned for one day. And he said, you got to tomorrow to come up with something. I'm going to release this guy. We returned to court the next day, and the judge said his previous ruling the day before troubled him all night, that he felt that the only one that would benefit from the witness refusal to testify is me or somebody acting for me, and that because of that, he wouldn't allow the prosecutor to use the grand jury testimony against me as evidence in chief and find that I waived my right to confrontation. At that moment, the lawyer that I had, Candace Kurtz, a very nice lady, uh, to ask me did I understand what was going on in the proceedings. I said somewhat. And she says, kid, it is time for you to learn what's going on. And she gave me two cases and said, you need to read those overnight. But in any event, she told the judge that she would have to testify and become a witness. And she would have to take the stand to explain what the witness told her in the hallway, in the bathroom, or whatever the conversation happened, and had to you know, show that there's no evidence that me and anybody did anything wrong. The judge reopened the hearing, my lawyer testified, and he still stuck by his decision. I was convicted based on the grand jury testimonies of Patricia Lee. I was sentenced to 25 years of life in prison for a murder I did not commit. Um, and five years later, the appellate division, second department in the case, ruled that the lower court was wrong, that they violated my right to confrontation by admitting the grand jury testimony as evidence achieved against me, that I never forfeited my right, that there was no evidence whatsoever that me and anybody tampered with the witness. And they reversed the case and remanded it back down for a new trial. Anyone listening is going to be going just like I'm going, well, okay, now you go free, right? Yes. Except that's not what happened. Not exactly. Because I was somewhat coerced to take a plea, an outfit plea, because I started a second trial. When the appellate division reversed it, they ordered a new trial. The prosecutor instructed the judge to the jury, actually, in the opening summation, that they should find me guilty of attention to murder in the second degree, a crime in which I was acquitted of at the first trial. Sounds like double jeopardy. Right. Um, I spoke to my lawyer about it, and I said, I just was acquitted of that. Um, he brought it to the court's attention after the jury stepped out of the room, and the judge, Markowitz, who it was at the time, she's deceased now, um, indicated that, well, it was a mistake. We're not giving you a mistrial. Um, yes, the prosecutor was wrong. Yes, he was acquitted of it, but we're going to dispose of this case one way or another. And my lawyer pulled me to the side and said, look, as you see, they're not trying to be fair. And, you know, I had a conviction for a weapon at that time as also. So he said, you got five years for the weapon. You're not going to run for mayor. You see they're trying to railroad you. They're willing to give you an outfit plea, and for the people that don't understand, well, United States Supreme Court in Alfred versus North Carolina um, rendered that a plea can be took where a person doesn't have to be allocated. They doesn't have to talk about the underlying factors of the case. You say, because there's a likelihood I may be convicted, not because I'm guilty. I accept the conditions of this plea. Right. So you're not admitting guilt, but the government is not admitting innocence. Yes. Right. So yes. you're basically in like a... Uh, sort of a, a, a gray area, yes. so to speak, right? Yes. But basically, you're allowed, you can go home, yes. which is what everybody wants. Yes. But yes. you can never sue the government. You cannot sue the state. Right. You, you cannot, you have no recourse. No recourse at all. Right. Because you're, they're never admitting that they were wrong. Right. Okay. So now you're out. Now I'm out. Um, and I'm, what happened? So now you're 20. I'm at that point, probably about 23. 
23, back to bed style. Yes, back to bed style. Back to the streets is still crazy out there. It's still, it's, it's crazier than when I left. I mean, when I left in 83, um, the drug game wasn't as crack cocaine never was in the community at that time. I mean, it hit my community in a very, very hard way. Um, it was like being in a different community. I mean, you came home, there were uh, mothers who were strung out on crack. There was whole families who were strung out on crack. There was individuals now who were drug czars who was running the neighborhood. Um, it was just a different environment. Um, so this is 80... 80... This is 1989. 89, right. Um, a father was killed in um a year before. So I'm um, coming home with that. I mean, there's a lot of different Your things. father was killed? Yes, he was shot and killed in Bevis Stuyvesant oh, um, a year before that. So I'm coming home with, um, you know, the idea of getting my life back together, getting my family back together. I was a mechanic helper at the B&M garage. I'm prior to going to prison and at a young age, I used to always work at a gas station on Franklin and, and uh, Clifton in Brooklyn. And a nickname I had was Amico Jr. because I love cars so much and I worked with Grease Monkeys type of stuff. So when I came home, Benjamin Oliver... Uh, my previous employer gave me a job, and I was working with him, you know, changing oil, doing little things around uh, the shop. So things are looking up. It was looking bit. up, and and my father had left me some money to invest. Uh, I got from his insurance policy to invest in a beauty salon. So I opened that in New Haven, Connecticut, and I'm moving along with my life. Unbeknownst to me that there was a detective and, and members of the district attorney's office. By the way, it's an interesting combination, working on cars and doing beauty, right? Yes, I mean, yeah. So you got a little, it's a little yin and yang. Ultimate appearance unisex alarm, man. You got grease both. and you got hairspray. Right. You got a whole thing going. <laughs> um, okay, so go ahead. Absolutely. So things are looking up. Right. And, you know, I'm tr- I got two children, uh, a six-year-old son and a six-year-old daughter with two different women. So I'm trying to be the best father that I can, taking them to school, picking them up. And unbeknownst to me, that there were some individuals in law enforcement who had me on their radar, who felt that the system had failed them, um, st- who still believed that I was guilty for the death of James Wolfe, the young man that was killed. And there were some cops that were very upset about it. Um, in 1991, or January of 1991, a friend of mine by the name of Nathaniel Cash was shot and killed in Brooklyn outside his home in Bedford Stuyvesant. Nathaniel Cash. Yes. Um, I was in New Haven, Connecticut that particular day, having stayed over the night before for a going away party for a friend of mine. Um, got a phone call indicating, actually, Nathaniel's Cash child mother received a phone call from her mother who indicated that Mr. Cash was shot and killed in Brooklyn. And that some detectives that came by a house looking for me said, there's Derek here. And well, you weren't there because you were in Connecticut. I was in Connecticut. And, you know, I took it as just talk. When I first heard that the cops was looking for me, for this murder. I didn't believe it. You know, I said, all right, people just saying that. But um, when my mother called me and said the cops had been by my house. How long had you been out at this point? Um, at this point, I'd been out probably probably six months, because uh, probably about six months. A New York City detective by the name of Louis Scarcella comes to New Haven, Connecticut, in the store that I own and operated the uh, beauty salon I told you about. Now, let me stop there for a second. Yes, Louis Scarcella mm-hmm. is... Infamous, and that's a very nice way of saying it. Very much so. Right. Louis Garcella is probably responsible for as many or more uh, wrongful convictions than any um, detective in the history of this country. I believe nine people so far have been exonerated, if my number's correct. But there's dozens of cases that have been reopened because they, they, there's, it's come out that there was, I mean, as for just one example, 
there were six different murder cases where he used the same witness who was a crackhead who he was supplying drugs to who he was i mean so this woman was so lucky that she witnessed six different murders i mean that's impossible impossible. and he was he was bribing her coercing her probably not the most reliable witness ever and maybe on the fifth one you'd go nobody could get that lucky right right, i mean but anyway that's just one example of what he was up to so he was the last guy in the world you wanted to be involved with if you were in the criminal justice system because he was going to get a conviction and he didn't care whatsoever that about was the facts of the case. That was him. He was interested in convictions, not truth. Yes, yes. So, okay, so Scarcell is looking for you. Right. You didn't know who he was, though, at this point. I didn't know who he was at this point. Never heard of him. Right. And he walks into the unisex salon that I own, kissed me on the side of my face, and says, Lafayette Gardens, motherfucker, excuse my vernacular, and automatically it tells me that this guy is from Brooklyn, and he says that I'm under the arrest. At that time, he said it was for a parole violation. I mean, it took me to... He the kissed U- you on, on the side, side of, of your cheek. face. On the side of my cheek. I mean... You know? Okay. So, I'm just... I don't yeah, even know right. what to say. <laughs> that was I about mean, right. I'm never at a loss for you words, I mean? Derek, but... Yeah, yeah I mean, that's, that's like did. some strange... Like, he thought he was in a movie type of he stuff. He okay. thinks the mafia figure. He has this big... You know, he looks like Joe Pesci, a taller Joe Pesci, and I think he took on that character. But um, if you ever see him testify or see his granddaughter, he just has that, you know, big Italiano mafioso look and I think he just stopped playing that role at some point but um he came in kissed me on the cheek arrested me took me to the Union Avenue station in New Haven Connecticut and told me there that I was being arrested for the death of Nathaniel Cash that he had five witnesses who could identify me and say I killed uh, this young man I told him I was innocent and that uh did you I tell him you were in Connecticut at the time yes absolutely he told well, me he where said. I was he just said he had five witnesses that disagreed and um that he was arresting me for it um, I was transported back to Brooklyn, arraigned on the indictment, pled not guilty. Um, and we began uh, the process in, in, you know, the criminal justice system. Here we and, go again. And, and Yes, here we go again. The sole witness. Fucking Groundhog Day. That accused me of the murder. Came to my lawyer four days after my arrest, explained to my lawyer that she never saw the crime. So and there wasn't five witnesses, there was one. There was one. There right. was a single witness who had told the cops immediately at the crime scene, she didn't see it, that she was at the store. When she came back, her boyfriend was shot and killed. Um, she was beat up at the scene of the crime, took to the precinct where Detective Scott Settle told her that if she didn't implicate me in the murder, that she herself would go to jail for the crime. Uh, she was on parole. She had kids too, she right? She had two children, and they right. told us they would lock her up because her boyfriend was a felon who had just got out of prison himself, and she had no business being with him. So they said because you in which case she would lose custody of her kids. She would lose custody. We see this over and over again with women. It's one of the strongest threats that you can make to a mother. Is listen, you're going to testify the way we want to, and they'll probably tell her to. And listen, by the way, this guy's a bad guy. If he didn't do this, he did some other stuff. You're doing society a favor. They tell him whatever the hell they want to tell him. But mostly, the only thing a woman in that situation is going to hear is you're going to lose custody of your kids. Right. And what she said was that you know it was either her or me in her mind that they told her, if you don't say this, you're going to jail. And she wasn't going to jail. She, Like you said, she had kids. So she just went along with the statement that Scarcella provided her with, which indicated that she saw me come to the building, and some young man passed me a gun, and I got the gun, and I shot Nathaniel Cash several times inside the vestibule of the building. Um, right, which doesn't match very well with the original story that she gave, right. where she wasn't there right. when the crime 
right. committed. Right. So that story changed. Yes. Right. Very nor conveniently. Does it, nor does it match with the science or the ballistics evidence in the case. Right. The guy was shot with two different weapons, and he was shot outside the vessel of the building in the street with the ultimate shot that killed him, which she never saw, um, which she was inaccurate in saying he was shot in the building by one gun. The fact that they learned this before the trial, the fact that they knew that her story was totally inaccurate with science, no one ever went to her and said, hey, you're lying. You know, you saw it, how did you miss this? They didn't care. And what they actually did was force her, even though she told them that she didn't want to come to the trial to testify, they locked her up on a mature witness order, brought her before the judge who was Edward Rappaport in Brooklyn, and told her that she would go to jail, which is on the record, if she didn't come in and cooperate fully with the prosecutor. Not truthfully, but fully. Whatever the prosecutor tells you to do, this is what you better do. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true, and I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things, and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed, and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Derek, one of the things I find so fascinating, one of the reasons I said I was honored to have you here is yes. because Derek became a, uh, a very accomplished jailhouse lawyer. Um, if that's, I don't know if that's the right way of saying it. It's, it's um, the terminology. <laughs> so in your second stay in prison, right, which was 21 years. So here yes. it is. Derek's 51 years old. Yes. Spent 27 years in prison. Yes. Between the two different wrongful convictions. Absolutely. So that's more than, it's about 60% of your life. Yes. In prison, uh-huh. right? And this is one of the things that I find so inspiring. Uh-huh. You said something along the lines of, I didn't have time to work out. And it's funny because you look like, I mean, he's a big, big, strong guy. I mean, he kind of looks like Mike Tyson, honestly. <laughs> but uh, but you didn't have time to work out. No, no. Because why? My whole life was spent on getting out. I was uh, an avid student of the law library. Um, I spent all my working hours there if I could. And when I didn't, you would find me probably in a cell reading a book and educating myself on the criminal justice system, the processes that take to convict a person to appeal and post-conviction. I had to master that. I mean, if I was able to level the playing field, then I had to be the most intelligent person in the court. And that was my goal, to study, to walk in the courtroom, to be able to understand the process. And I just read everything they had in the law library. I just studied everything. But it, but but it wasn't just that. You had a team, right? Oh, I mean, the you, team came later. But I'll tell you about my great team. Yeah, I want to hear about um, this. Because I look at it, and, it was like a and, law firm right, in prison, right? And two, right, it was. It was it was a very good team. In 2009, I arrived at the Auburn Corrections Facility. Maximum Security. Maximum Security Prison. I was in segregation at the time. Um, it was a very dark moment of, of my incarceration because I had began going to the parole board in 2009. And when I began going to the parole board, I had a dilemma where they wanted you to admit the guilt. And I couldn't admit guilt. And I felt right, right. as and if, that is a dilemma. We see it over and over again with guys in your situation uh, who, who are faced with, you got to admit guilt if you want to have any chance to get out. So actually, when you have a 25 years to life sentence, it's it's a life sentence yes. unless you're going to admit to a crime that you didn't commit. Yes. Otherwise, it's life because the parole board's never going to say, yeah, let this, right. this guy go unless you come in and go, I'm so sorry. Right. I never should have done this. I feel right. guilt. I feel remorse. Right. I feel everything. But it's hard to feel remorse for something you didn't do. You didn't do. So I'm at this dilemma, attempt suicide. Um, the facility, no mercy, says I faked the suicide attempt and throw me in a box. 23 hours a day, and you have one hour of exercise a day in a cage, a dog kennel type of cage, if you can imagine. Yeah, like on and, TV. Right, and um, you are, I mean, you, you're just subject to some of the most horrendous treatment in the world because you're around a lot of mentally ill prisoners that bang and throw feces and urine, and you're subject to a very degrading time. So I'm there, and, and um, I get, say, a letter from the law library because the cops bring two books a day you're allowed in, in special housing. And the letter says, hey, man, I'm glad you're here from God Law Library. Uh, we waiting for you, you know, to get out, and we look forward to working for you. And it's Danny Rincon. And when I get out of the box, um, a friend of mine said, hey, Danny has a group, and the group is called Actual Innocence. 
And these guys want you to come work the law library. They know you're smart. They know you know what you're doing. And they need you to come out here and, and lead the group. And at that time, a friend of Shabaka Shakur, who was another Scott Seller victim who's out now as well, is working as a clerk. And I convinced Shabaka to come to the law library. And we developed, we joined, actually, the actual innocence team that Danny has. And we beef it up. We beef it up with knowledge. So this is like um, a law firm, like Rincon, Shabaka, and Hamilton. Right. And you got firm, Richard right? Rosario came. We, oh, got, yeah. we got him in there to come with us. He was a part of our AI team. And we got a, a nice team of guys who were serious about the innocence. Uh, Cal Harris, who ultimately just beat his beat his uh his wife's murder upstate. He was in prison for killing his wife that he didn't do. Had three trials, was just his honor. He was a part of a team. And we would get to the law library, and we would study each other's cases, help each other out, and help people in the population out. But what we would do was be the most biggest critic on each other's case. And if we thought that there was a question as to a witness credibility, we would bring it up. If we thought there was any flaw, and what I brought to the team is I said, look, here's the problem I'm having is that— uh, PR. We need to get public relations, public media involved in letting our society know that we exist. And, you know, they thought I was crazy at the time. I said, I'm going to get my family to go do a rally outside of the Brooklyn Supreme Court. And I had a motion at the time. And I sent my family down to do a rally. And it wound up on the front page, well, a big page, wherever it was, in the Daily News. And it says, inmates will go free if the court hears witnesses. And having that article ran in Dairy News for the AI team was a whole different level of organizing. Now, here are guys who were downtrodden and who had been beat up by the criminal justice system, motion denied, denied, and they knew they was innocent. There was no doubt that we was innocent. There was overwhelming evidence in each of our cases to prove that. But we were being treated as, uh, you know, as if we didn't exist, that we didn't count, that the law didn't apply to us because society thought we were bad people, that we wasn't human beings who deserved to be treated fair. And when that article came out, it showed the team how much power we have if we can organize our families on society to make noise. And we so, did that. So now you're organizing inside and outside right. the walls, right? right. So what we, what we decided to strategize was to contact Lonnie Sorry, who was a PR guy that worked on the Marty Tankliff case. Okay. I reached out to Lonnie, and I sent him $500, and, and I said, Lonnie, look, that's all I got, man. I'm a guy. It's my commissary money. Hey, I don't need to eat, but we need you. And my wife called Lonnie and said, Lonnie, well, Derek says you're organizing a rally outside of City Hall. And he says, I didn't tell Derek I was organizing a rally outside City Hall. And then I said, have everybody family call him. So Lonnie was getting phone calls from all our families and friends. And he told my wife, what are Derek doing to me? He got people calling me saying I'm giving a rally. But he was convinced to give the rally. And it was our first one. We was all in prison. Lonnie went out there with our family, about 50 people. And we was able to see the pictures and see the news and the way he made of it. And he empowered us. Let us know that, you know, people did care about the wrongly convicted because we was on the steps of City Hall and had a nice turnout. So that began us really having a sense of power, knowing what we can do um, with, with, with just, you know, our families and, and educating people on what's happening to us. So, I mean, during that process, I began to write lawyers, um, asking for help. Um, Lonnie was helping me. He was very much an advocate of mine at this time helping me. And Jonathan Edelstein from Edelstein and Grossman began, wrote me back and said that he was sickened about what had happened to me. Uh, being a lawyer for 17 years, I think he said, he said that he was really troubled how the courts were storing my evidence of innocence in the garbage. And he said, I think you should go to the media with this 
And I sent them a check for $1,500 and said, this is all I got left. Um, would you be my lawyer? He said, I'm sending you your check back because I can't take your money. Your motion is immaculate. But what I will do is write a friend to the court brief and ask the court to grant you a hearing on your evidence of innocence. He said um, your motion is immaculate. Yes. You must he, have felt he, pretty good about that. I did. I did. And He's, what kind of education did you have before this? I mean, GED. Um, you had your GED. Okay. Blackstone School of Law. Um, even the college courses they had, you know, I just couldn't see myself spending all my working hours in college when I had to actually learn law. And they wasn't teaching law courses there, so I had no interest in going to college. I had to be in the law library. But, um, and at that point, when Mr. Edelstein wrote me back, I felt great. And um, the judge denied my motion. Um, he found that there was a law of court in the jurisdiction that he couldn't overturn the previous judges who denied previous 440s and 330.30. So he was kind of in the bind that he would not reverse the conviction. At that point, Jonathan Edelstein became my attorney. He said that he would file a leave to the appellate division on my behalf, free of charge. And um, he also um, decided to write a letter to the parole board on my behalf. And he wrote a very touching letter to the parole board. And, it's, and basically he's told the parole board that society has no interest in keeping an innocent man in prison. So he said, this man is not a risk to society because he's innocent. And he outlined all the evidence that we had to prove that I was innocent. And he basically invited them to take a look. Um, the parole board released me based on a letter, amongst other things, and wished me good luck in proving my innocence. Um, this is, what year are we in 2011, now? December. 2011. So you'd been in for 21 years on the second wrongful conviction yes. at this point, right? A right. total of 27. Yeah. There's only three cases I know of. Right. In, in the hundreds of, of exonerations that we've had, mm-hmm. Innocence Project and other projects, mm-hmm. that, that where there's been somebody who's been wrongfully convicted twice. Yes. There's only three. Yeah. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true, and I'm not offended by that. Thank you for for going through those things, and thank you for overcoming them. Wow, thank God for the limits. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed, 
and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. So, I'm home, and I'm... Busting my butt to find a job. Um, I contact Scott Brett Snyder, my previous lawyer, said I'm home. You know, I got a paralegal degree, and I think post-conviction is the place to go. There's a lot of guys left in there that's innocent. We should work on these cases. And we started working. Um, my wife contacts me one day and says she gets an email. We share emails. And some investigator or detective contacted her and said they wanted to get in touch with you. I said, I'm going to Canada. Now I'm out of here. What do you mean they want to get in touch with me? I don't want to speak to nobody. What do you want to talk to me about? Now, me, I'm thinking that detective. They're coming after you again for a third time. now? Right. So I'm scared. And I call a guy, and he says, no. I work for a lawyer uh, by the name of Pierre Sussman. He says, uh, Pierre wants to speak to you about Louis Garcella. And I says, okay. What do you want to meet me at? He says, up in the Bronx by the courthouse. I go up and meet this guy, and... You know, I look, so I, you know, I'm across the street, you know, checking out the scenario, seeing me first. And I see a guy and, and I call him. He picks up the phone. So I'm on my way. He says, well, I'm over here waiting. He looks like a hipster. You know, he got a trench coat on. I said, well, you don't too much look like a cop because he got, you know, hippie kind of look with him. I said, maybe I can trust this guy. So I go over and introduce myself. And he tells me that he has a prisoner, uh, in, an inmate, who will be released in two weeks. And that the DA's office in Kings County agreed that Louis Garcella framed this guy. And for me, it's like, wow. Like somebody was finally able to establish that this cop has been doing the things we've been arguing for a long time. When I say we, I'm thinking about Chewbacca, uh, Alvin Jeanette, Robert Hill, Darrell Austin, all these guys, Nelson Cruz, these guys who I know that he framed, personally know that he framed. And I'm saying, wow, we have an opportunity. 
So in the course of this, um, he asked me about my case, and I said I have a lawyer. But I introduced him to Jeanette Hill in Austin, who he has gotten exonerated. Uh, as of now, they've been exonerated. Amazing. And, That's and, amazing. And um, I tell him about those guys and Teresa Gomez, how Scott Seller used her in six different homicides. And and he was surprised to even hear that because he didn't know about that at the time. And he says, okay, well, I can't tell you the name of my client that's going to be released. But in two weeks, they're going to be released. And please, you know, contact me again. In two weeks, David Ranter was released. The first guy who was ever able to establish the scar seller had told the witness to pick out the guy with the hook nose which was how he identified Ranta. And it established what we've been saying, that this is the tactics and the strategy that this cop used to convict innocent people. So after after having learned this and David Ranta's release, I run into a reporter by the name of Francis Robles from the New York Times. And Robles is investigating Julio Acevedo case, and she calling us to learn more about Acevedo. Acevedo was a guy that was accused of killing the real 50 Cent originally, who 50 Cent got his name from. And I got Acevedo out of prison on the 440 motion, got his judgment vacated and released because he was kidnapped by drug dealers, made to kill the 50 cent. It was under duress. And once the judge charged the jury, if he can prove he did it under duress, they had to find him not guilty. I got the evidence, got the guy out of prison. So Robles wanted to know who was Acevedo. And he had a car accident in Brooklyn. Three ascetic Jews had died. His face was all over the news recently at that time. And I got him to surrender himself, come in and, and deal with the case. Don't run because it wasn't in his best interest. And she asked, what, why would he be afraid of the cops? Why would this guy be so afraid of the cops? And I said, look, here's a guy that was arrested previously. He told the cops the truth. How he was kidnapped, pistol whipped, made to commit a murder. They didn't believe him. He spent 10 years in prison. Had I not got him out, he probably would have still been there. I said, here's a guy that's afraid. And me. I'm a guy, big guy, but I'm afraid of the cops. Cops framed me twice. And I mean, I, you would be uh, afraid of the uh, cops if uh, they frame you once. Uh, I mean. Absolutely. And I said, look, I was just informed by a lawyer that in two weeks, the cop that framed me and others is for the first time going to be revealed as being that type of cop. I said, if it happens, get in touch with me. I'll give you the evidence to establish that there's others. And we made a deal. And in two weeks, Ranta was released. I got a call from Francis Rovers and said, hey, you got that evidence or you was just talking, basically. And, and I introduced her to Jeanette, and she, and she did a very good investigation. And the New York Times got the Kings County DA's office under Charles Einstein to agree to look at 55 of Scar Cellar cases. 55. 55 at that time. It's 55 people. I mean, when you think, you know, and everything is, it's so hard to imagine. I mean, even what one person could go through. But 55 is such a huge number. Yes. That one person could cause that much destruction and damage to so many people's lives. Erroneous identification, false confessions, uh, failure to turn over discovery. This is our criminal justice system here. When you deal with the ones that we can fix, like erroneous identifications, um, there have been studies that you know about and I know about that says that we can fix erroneous identifications by having something called double-blind lineups where the cops doesn't know who the suspect is. So there's no fear that they will suggest to pick out number three or pick out the guy with the hooked nose or the so, black so, guy so with let, let, I want to go back to that for a second because I'm yes. glad you brought that up. Yes. So the Supreme Court actually took on this issue. Yes. And I'm reading from a, a book I consider like the Bible, which yes. is called Convicting the Innocent by Brandon Garrett. Shout out to him. <laughs> Shout out, Brandon. <laughs> so in Manson Brathwaite, 
a case involving a prison custodian named Manson, not the famous serial uh-huh, killer. Uh-huh, uh-huh. The U.S. Supreme Court noted the dangers of suggestive identification procedures. The court had long recognized, quote, the vagaries of eyewitness identification, where the annals, quote, the annals of criminal law are rife with instances of mistaken identification. And in that, in that decision... The court affirmed that the due process clause of the Constitution, which everybody's familiar with, Uh embraces the right to be free from unduly suggestive eyewitness identification procedures. Uh uh Okay. Right. Now we're on the right track. Thank you, Supremes. That's right. right. Okay. Such as showing the eyewitness a single photograph of the suspect or telling the eyewitness whom to identify in a lineup. Yes. Which we know has happened over and over Over again, again, including in, in some ways in your case. Yes. However, and this is where it's, it, it all falls apart. Mm-hmm. However, the court in Manson, in the same ruling, added a caveat that undercut the power of that holding. Because even, they found that even if the police engage in suggestive procedures so potentially suggestive that they violate due process, mm-hmm. the identification may still be admitted at trial if it is otherwise, quote, reliable. Yes. I mean, that is just... I mean, okay, so they said you can't do this, but it's okay if you do. Yes. Basically, yes. that's what they said, right? Yes, yes, basically, I'm, because who determines reliability, number one? And they didn't set forth a test to determine the reliability. Right, so, so what they said, yeah, go ahead. if there's an independent source. So now what they do is they instruct the witness, hey, hey, you've seen a guy before, right? I was seen him before. Yeah, I've seen him once or twice in a supermarket with his mother. And they make that the independent source. However... If the person could have identified you, then when the cops first asked him who committed the crime, he should have said, hey, a guy that I saw in a supermarket with his mother, you know, was the guy that committed this crime. That's the problem. A lot of times when they say something suggestive, they allow them to use a reason that they believe is reliable that no reasonable person would find to be reliable. Which they can invent and we yes. all know. So basically that, yes. that, that's, a, that's a ruling that has to be amended Yes, because it, it's, so, it's, so, it's really it's such a terrible missed opportunity yes. where the Supreme Court recognized this yes. problem that has been responsible for so many wrongful convictions, including yours. Yes. But then they undercut their own decision and made it basically toothless meaningless yes and so so then we wind up in the situation that we're in i think that the audience should work on with us putting prosecutors in office to understand the dangers of wrongful conviction in brooklyn we had a prosecutor run on that platform we need ken to, thompson shout yes, out to ken, ken thompson, thompson you know what i mean yeah. shout out to him one of, the, one of the best there ever was right 20 something wrongful convictions and overturned two, yes overturned in two years we need prosecutors who are willing to understand that a Part of their job, a part of their role, is quasi-judicial. You know, candor to the courts, fairness to the accused. And if we get that, then we can change the system all around the country. We just need prosecutors who just don't believe in locking them up, throwing the key away, but in justice. Don't forget to give us a fantastic review wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps. And I'm a proud donor to the Innocence Project, and I really hope you'll join me in supporting this very important cause and helping to prevent future wrongful convictions. Go to innocenceproject.org to learn how to donate and get involved. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall and Kevin Wardis. The music in the show is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction and on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast. Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a production of Lava for Good Podcasts in association with Signal Company Number 1. 
something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Hi, listener. I'm Carol Fisher, the host of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister. I'm so excited for you to hear the brand new season where we're uncovering a 35-year-old mystery. But for those of you who didn't hear season one or just want to listen to it again, you can now get access to all episodes of that first season of The Girlfriends 100% ad-free through the iHeart True Crime Plus subscription, which is available exclusively on Apple Podcasts. You'll also get access to every single episode of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, ad-free and one week early, only available to iHeart True Crime Plus subscribers. So what are you waiting for? Head to Apple Podcasts, search for iHeart True Crime Plus, and subscribe today. Summon your anticipation for an all-new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. This season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd. 